Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Legal Faceoff right here on WGN Radio. I'm your guest moderator today, Joey Christopoulos, filling in for the incomparable Joe Brand. With us, as always, are our hosts, Tina and Rich. Hello, Tina. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. And Rich, how are you today? Welcome back to the show, Joey. You went from a grab bag to hosting in a matter of weeks. So uh... I'm punching the clock now. I'm, I'm, I'm on the hour now and I'm, I'm happy to be here. And we're also very happy to have our guest here today. She is Professor Elizabeth Sepper, Professor of Law at the University of Texas at Austin. And she's here to talk about a significant development in abortion law this week. Elizabeth, thank you for joining. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Doing well. So, Professor, last week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a bill that bans abortion the moment a fetal heartbeat has been detected, which is around six weeks of pregnancy. Can you summarize for us the key points of this legislation? So the law looks like other laws that we've seen and have been held unconstitutional for banning abortion pre-viability, as this one does. What's unusual is this law creates a private right of action. So it gives the authority to other citizens of the United States to bring lawsuits against abortion providers and anyone who aids and abets an abortion. So this is what's quite unique about the law in Texas. Yeah, it's a little strange to me that you would allow a private citizen to sue anyone who assists someone in violating this new pregnancy law. So inevitably, of course, we all look to the Supreme Court. Um, We will have following you another professor discussing the conservative majority in the Supreme Court. What do you think the prospects are for this case as it, again, inevitably will get to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, who knows? I mean, what's really interesting here is that this procedural uh, workaround that Texas has developed is actually meant to prevent abortion providers from being able to go to federal court before enforcement and say, hey, this is unconstitutional. It's a six-week ban. Everyone agrees six-week bans are unconstitutional. Instead, what the state says is you're going to have a a case of private citizen versus private citizen in state court, and the abortion providers are supposed to wait until those lawsuits are filed. Uh, So not clear what will happen here in this case. So what do you think are some of the likely consequences, both direct and indirect, with respect to this, this new law and especially this provision enabling private citizens to be a lot more active? in this type of situation? Uh, So as so much, right, when we're talking about uncharted territory with law, it's not clear. Um, Abortion providers may be able to successfully bring a claim in federal court. They could say, look, basically the private citizens are going to act as state enforcers. The only way to enforce a law that clearly comes from the state is through a private citizen. And therefore, constitutional rights need to be safeguarded by the federal district courts, and they should enjoin the law from going into effect. So it may never go into effect. Of course, this is all wrapped up, as you alluded to, to what the Supreme Court does in the Mississippi case that it has on abortion before it right now, um, where it may, in fact, reverse Roe, and then we'll be in a very different uh, legal world. 
Yeah, Professor, when you contrast what this law um, says and the precedence of Casey, of course, and, and Roe, it's really a dramatic change, right? Um, to the point where you are banning abortions before women might even, even know they're pregnant, right? I mean, talk to us about the, the six weeks standard that this uh, law imposes and how that relates to years and years of Supreme Court precedent on that very issue. Right. So Roe v. Wade in 1973 set an important line. States can regulate um, after viability. After viability, they may ban abortion. That line has moved up a little bit over time. It's probably around 24 weeks gestation, and even that is, is touch and go. Um, and then Casey uh, v. Planned Parenthood, the case you alluded to, was 1992, where the Supreme Court then allowed lots of regulation. So it said you can regulate as long as you don't impose an undue burden on uh, abortion, um, but that viability line still matters. You can't ban abortion before uh, viability. So we have lots of restrictions on abortion that courts have upheld, but bans have been um, outside the pale. And six weeks is before most women know that they're pregnant. Technically speaking, it's six weeks after your la- the first day of your last period. So do you think, I mean, that's obviously a dramatic change, right? And uh, those in favor of keeping the status quo and of a woman's right to choose are obviously up in arms over this. It's a dramatic change. So I guess no one knows how the Supreme Court will deal with this. Obviously, during the most recent confirmations, all of the justices have said they're not going to you know, predict their uh, position on this issue. They're, they're not going to uh, adhere to a litmus test. Um, knowing what we know about, you know, especially the new, the three newest justices, do you think this is a line too far? I mean, do you think the Supreme Court, even though we're dealing with a very conservative majority, will go to this extreme that Texas is now has now signed into law? We will soon find out, right? The t- case they took uh, involving a Mississippi 15-week ban will essentially require overturning Roe v. Wade if they allow Mississippi's 15-week ban to go forward. I think that you can easily count to five justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, And so to me, that would be the most likely outcome. Now, will the court say only 15 weeks? Probably not. It's hard to know what principal line you could use to easily distinguish between 15 and six. There are lines, right? Um, Anti-abortion proponents have really pushed on fetal pain um, as a possible line where uh, you could regulate once a fetus can Uh, feel pain. The science doesn't support 15 weeks as that line. Um, So if Roe v. Wade were reversed, then yes, you could see a six-week ban take place um, in Texas. In fact, Texas takes the position that its pre-Roe v. Wade law is still good law. So you'd see criminal uh, sanctions for performing abortions. Professor, last question on legal face-off. You know, again, we're discussing it as a very extreme change of what the status quo has been for for years. Those who favor this kind of legislation and inevitably those who favor overturning Roe don't couch it in an issue of whether you're obstructing a woman's right to choose. They couch it more as a state's rights issue, right? That this is an issue to be decided best by the states, not by the federal government. And that's how it seems like uh, the Supreme Court, if they do overturn Roe in the Mississippi or in this Texas case, 
that's how they'll approach it. Do you, do you, do you agree with at least that's how they might approach this issue? I think overturning Roe would most immediately return this issue to this, the issue of abortion to the states. I don't actually think that anti-abortion advocates take the position that this is a state's issue. In fact, many of them assert that a a fetus is a 14th Amendment person and therefore has rights to life that should trump a woman's right to health, at least, and maybe a woman's right to life. Um, And so I think that is is not something that we will see in the Mississippi case, but it is the position that some anti-abortion advocates uh, do take. Yeah, and in fact, to your point, and I, we got to wrap up, I know, but uh, the governor of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, said in he when he signed the bill into law, uh, saying, our creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. So, yeah, to your point, uh, those in favor of these measures are, in fact, saying that life begins much earlier than the Supreme Court currently views it. Professor Elizabeth Tepper, Professor of Law at the University of Texas at Austin, thank you so much for joining and talking about this issue with us today. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you all. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Next up, we are happy to welcome Professor Kent Greenfield. He has a book that's coming out called Corporations Are People Too, and They Should Act Like It. And he is a former clerk to the Supreme Court Justice Souter. And we are here today to talk about the conservative majority. Hi, Professor. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So, Professor, the Supreme Court is going to have a very busy docket over the coming months with a number of cases that relate to what's been termed the culture war issues such as the Mississippi law banning most abortions after 15 weeks, um, as well as the right to carry guns in public and self-defense, as well as potentially revisiting affirmative action in college admissions. Knowing the current makeup and ideological leanings of the Supreme Court, what can we expect to see in the next few months? Well, this court has teed up uh, quite a bit of, of uh, really important cases in the, in the coming term. And of course, you remember that the court sets its own agenda, sets its own docket. It chooses which cases it's going to uh, hear. And this court is among the most conservative courts that we've had 
in the nation's history. It's now a solid six to three majority of conservative over uh, more more liberal justices. And I think what they've done is that even Chief Justice Roberts is now to the left of the center of this court. And so there's this core of uh, really solid five vote majority that is teeing up all these cases that's probably likely to change the law in all those areas that you mentioned. Professor, what's really interesting, I think, in this dynamic, and you've commented on this quite articulately, is, you know, throughout history, we've referred to the Warren Court or the Rehnquist Court, right, to the point where generally the chief justice enjoys some degree of power and puts his, it's only been a his so far, stamp on the Supreme Court. Now it seems that is shifting. And to your point, Roberts doesn't seem to have the fulcrum of power anymore. Can we still can we still call this court a Roberts court? Yeah, it's a great question, Rich. I, I, of course, you know, let's remember as a historical matter, the last time that that the court had a majority of democratically nominated justices was 1969, right? So, so it's been over 50 years uh, of of a strong sort of conservative court, and this is historically even more conservative than that. Now, two years ago, or three years ago now, when, when Kavanaugh resigned and when Kennedy resigned and was replaced by Kavanaugh, uh, it really moved the court to the right. Kennedy was the center of the court. He was like a swing justice. So Roberts became the swing justice there for about three years until Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last year and was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. And now um, Chief Justice Roberts is the sixth of the conservative votes. And if you sort of put them on an ideological spectrum, you know, he's closer to the uh, progressive side than uh, than Thomas and, and, and Alito and, and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett. So we've got, um, uh, so Roberts, there's only so much that Roberts can do. The five conservatives do not need his vote to make decisions on gun rights or abortion rights or affirmative action. And so Robert, for three years there, it was the Roberts court in terms of that he was the center of power. And uh, that's no longer true. So, Professor, to that point, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been called an incrementalist and an institutionalist in his approach to leading the court thus far. Given what we've been discussing, the current makeup of the court and the upcoming docket, do you think that this continues to be the right approach for Chief Justice Roberts to take? Well, you know, he's in, he's in a bit of a bind, right? He, uh, he I, by all accounts, you know, he is an institutionalist. He cares about the reputation of, of the court. And he, you know, he, although he, you know, he's, He's voted very, very conservatively on a couple of really important and, and pivotal cases like Shelby County about about the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, he upheld the, the, the Trump uh, anti-Muslim ban, travel ban. And, and but on the other hand, you know, he's he upheld the ACA, the uh, Obamacare for several times. You know, he voted in favor of interpreting uh, Title VII to include uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So you're right. So he's, you know, he's sort of been on both sides on some very crucial, crucial cases. But, you know, he's there's not much he can do. You know, the, there only it only takes four votes to, to grant review of a case. And uh, there are five conservative votes. And yet it only takes five votes to to uh, to decide a case. You know, one of the famous lines from William Brennan, one of the most liberal justices ever, was the most important rule at the Supreme Court is the rule of five. You need five votes to, to decide a case. And the conservatives, are, I think, are going to really uh, show, show the power of that old adage. Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Um, in the short time that we've had this majority of conservatives, has anything that the new justices 
said or done or most importantly written surprised you? I know there's been, you know, some inkling that they haven't always voted as a block and we've seen some evidence of maybe them straying a little bit. So do you, have you seen anything in their writings or do you think they've been solidly conservative throughout or do you think they're sort of lying in wait and they really will go to the extreme right? Um, and we're talking, of course, about Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and, and Barrett. Well, Barrett, well, remember, Barrett only took her seat in early November of last year. So she, so most of the opinions that are the key opinions that are coming out this year have not come out yet. So it's unclear yet uh, how we can measure her influence and the, and the influence of the five key block, the five conservative block. We have, though, seen over the last six months an increasingly um, level of attentiveness toward the, the, toward the claims of, of, of religious adherents who are saying that, like, the the mask requirements and the pro and the and the um, uh, the COVID vac- COVID uh, protocols were restricting their religious rights, and I think those th- that's an indication of of, uh, of a change in doctrine, and I think that's probably just a sign of things to come. Professor Kent Greenfield. Greenfield, thank you so much for joining Legal Face Off. Everyone and the viewers watching, make sure you check out his book. Corporations are people too, and they should act like it. Professor Greenfield, thank you for joining. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Back on Legal Faceoff with a really uh, breaking legal story that came across this morning. Uh, we learned that a Dutch court has found against Shell Oil in what might be a uh, important precedent for these kind of cases. We're very fortunate to have from Northern Illinois University College of Law, Associate Professor of Law, Sarah Fox. Uh, Professor Fox teaches environmental law, land use, uh, or property. And I know I'm missing one, Professor. Yeah, and state and local government law. State and local government law. Thank you so much. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here and excited to talk about this decision. Yeah, so this decision, like I mentioned, just came across uh, this morning. So we're all still analyzing it. Uh, what I learned, one of the things I learned from the decision was that Shell Oil's total greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. Uh, were about the same as Russia, which is the world's fourth largest producer. This court in the Netherlands found that Shell Oil needs to accelerate their program of reducing their emissions quite considerably. They had been on track to uh, get to net zero before 2050. Um, They were planning on reducing it by 20% within a decade. This That was not enough. This court said that... um, the uh, Shell Oil has to slash their emissions by 45% by 2030 compared to 2019 levels. So this is you know, a really significant decision. What are your thoughts on whether this signals the beginning of a more aggressive approach that courts are taking both uh, abroad and here domestically with regards to uh, climate polluters? Yeah, I mean, I guess... I'll answer the the abroad part first, which I think is yes. I mean, UK courts have started to suggest that they're going to entertain climate lawsuits like this, allowing claims, for instance, from some Nigerian farmers to go forward against some oil companies. We're starting to see greater acceptance of those claims, certainly in the Netherlands, right? We also 
several years ago, the Dutch court came out with the Urgenda decision, which actually held the Netherlands responsible for greenhouse gas reduction, said that the, you know, the state itself has to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. I think that is in line with this. I think that's kind of exciting to, to see happening and maybe will embolden, you know, more kind of cases like this in other countries. I think it's also really significant, though, because it's saying that you international corporation can be held responsible you know, by the state and might be, you know, required to reduce emissions. Now, I don't want to, you know, this decision just came out today. It's a lower court decision. It will definitely be appealed, right? This is by no means kind of the end of the issue against against Shell. And now they're just going to go ahead and, and, you know, comply. But I think it's exciting for those reasons. Now, all of that's on the international level, right? The U.S. has been actually pretty disappointing on this front. And I wouldn't really expect a lot to change, unfortunately, in terms of how courts in the U.S. are going to handle this climate litigation. Um, you know, for the reason that we just have this, you know, a decision coming out last month, um, you know, from the Second Circuit, rejecting very similar claims against Chevron, saying that, you know, the court can't even entertain this lawsuit, right? Plaintiffs have let, lost on standing. They've lost on kind of, you know, even just the, the court, you know, there's kind of non-judiciability essentially coming out of the court saying this isn't the kind of case that we in the U.S. are going to entertain. And I just I don't see this kind of case coming out of the Netherlands really changing much about that U.S. court analysis, unfortunately. And it should be noted to that point that the Netherlands was a signatory to the Paris Agreement, which doesn't apply to Shell Oil, uh, even though the court said, basically, we're going to hold you to the same standards as if you were a signatory to the Paris Agreement, which I think yeah. is very significant. And of course, domestically, a lot of that is rolled up into, you know, who is in the White House and who is um, in Congress, right? Because so much of it on our side uh, of the Atlantic is wrapped up into politics, right? And we saw under the Trump right. administration a real aversion to some of these issues and certainly pulling out of the Paris uh, Agreement, whereas President Biden has demonstrated a willingness to, you know, maybe go back to what his predecessor or what Obama signed. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, you're right. And from my brief kind of skim so far of the decision, there's a lot of talk of, you know, the Paris courts of various international commitments and talking about how they, you know, even for a non-signatory, they provide this kind of background of knowledge about climate change, about the effects of climate change and kind of the responsibilities. And it's almost been used in the kind of opposite way in the U.S., which is saying that there's all these international agreements, right? There's the Clean Air Act at the federal level. You can't bring these tort-style claims to try and address climate change. They're preempted. They're preempted by the Clean Air Act. They're preempted by these international accords. And so we see the same kinds of references being made in the U.S., but just to very different effect, which just, again, as you were saying, right, points out the enormous responsibility and kind of power at the federal level to, to change that, right? They that what we need is better federal legislation that then either, you know, carves out a role for, you know, liability on climate change or more explicitly doesn't preempt this kind of action. Yeah, there are currently 1,800 lawsuits related to climate change in courts around the world. So we'll definitely have to have you back on to look at the impact of this decision, uh, which, as you mentioned, Shell will inevitably appeal as it relates to these other lawsuits. Professor Sarah Fox from the Northern Illinois University College of Law. I'm a proud alum, class of 95. Professor, go Huskies and join us again on Legal Faceoff. All right. Great to see you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. 
Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Coming up next, we are happy to have a returning guest right here on Legal Faceoff. He is a CNN senior legal analyst. He has a new book coming out called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. It's Ellie Honig. Ellie, welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Always glad to be with you all. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, I'm like a Chicagoan by adoption. I've been adopted by the city of Chicago. Despite your allegiance to the Phillies, we'll welcome you. We know the connection. Uh, <laughs> Listen, um, you, wait, wait, hold on. You guys stole Ryan Sandberg from us. So, like, you know, <laughs> there, right. there's nothing and, I can say. <laughs> well, I, I would say we stole Nick Foles, but I'm not sure that <laughs> I'm not sure that's the right, you know, direction. Um, yeah, yeah. Your receipt on that? <laughs> He's the, a legend. He won us the Super Bowl. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Rich. Return policy on that. So, listen, your book couldn't be coming out at a more timely time because uh, in the news last week was Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who said that she ordered the release of the redacted DOJ memo. In simple terms, she found that Bill Barr, who's your buddy, your best friend, uh, she said that he lied about the Mueller report. What's the significance of that ruling? So, Rich, first of all, one of the crazy things is my book went to the printer a couple of weeks ago. And since then, there's been about four more significant bar scandals. And I keep texting my editor, frequent, you know, furious, and we have to add this. And he goes, we can't. It's physically being printed. So it'll be in the paperback volume two. But I think this all speaks loudly to just how corrupt Bill Barr was and how much damage he did. This new revelation, so there's really two parts of Judge Amy Berman Jackson's ruling. The one that's not news is that Bill Barr lied to all of us about the Mueller report. When I say that's not news, because Robert Mueller already said so, and another federal judge, by the way, if, if, if this matters, a Republican nominated federal judge, Reggie Walton down, down in D.C., both said already on the record that Barr lied. And now Judge Amy Berman Jackson is yet another federal judge. That's a huge deal, by the way, to have a federal judge say that any federal prosecutor, never mind the attorney general, lied is a big deal. We should not get numb to that. The second piece of this new revelation is that Bill Barr and DOJ even sort of lied about the lie, which is this. If you remember, Bill Barr spent all of a weekend, two days with the Mueller report. He got it on a Friday, 448 pages, single spaced, thousands of footnote citations. On Sunday, two days later, he, Bill Barr, came out and said, I've reviewed it all, no obstruction. Okay. 
This citizens group called Crew then sues DOJ and says, we want all the documents around this. We think something's wrong here. And DOJ says, well, we have this one memo, but it's what we call pre-decisional, meaning Bill Barr studied it and relied on it for legal advice when he was making his big no obstruction decision. And Judge Amy Berman Jackson said, BS, that's not what happened. I've, you guys, have, you DOJ have given me the record. In fact, it was sort of done on a rolling basis. It was really more done to justify what Barb was doing than to inform it. And then it was sort of finished after the fact. It was essentially done as cover. And Judge Amy Berman Jackson blew the lid off that cover and said, I don't accept this. So it's sort of a two-level scandal that we learned about this week. So, Ali, the plot is thickening. The new attorney general, Merrick Garland, is appealing portions yeah. of Judge Berman Jackson's ruling which not surprisingly you find problematic. Why? I think it's a mistake. I think it's a missed opportunity by Merrick Garland. I think he had an opportunity here to make a clean break and really make a statement to the public, which is we are, we have, we are different from Bill Barr. We are not making apologies for Bill Barr. We are not going to go to bat for Bill Barr. We do things differently here. We don't fudge the truth to federal judges. Now, I can also give you a sort of educated uh, you know, surmise about why Merrick Garland is appealing the case. Two things. First of all, every new administration DOJ, it doesn't matter if it's going Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican, inherits messes. It's just an inherent part of the job. It's always hard to deal with those messes. And generally, the new DOJ doesn't want to upset the cart any more than necessary, right? They don't like to just suddenly change legal positions. The other thing is DOJ is historically very protective of its internal deliberations and its privileges. And so I, I would surmise that DOJ, if you ask them, would say, we felt it was important to protect our internal memos and our internal discussions and that kind of thing. But I think it was a mistake by Merrick Garland. I think he should have made a clean break and said, we're not about that BS. Ella, your book, again, Hatchet Man, it comes out in July, as you mentioned. I can't wait. It's going to be a really great read. Um, you know, you worked under other attorney generals and you assert in this book that Barr was by far the most corrupt AG in American history. I know there are many examples in your book that you point to, but give our listeners, our viewers, maybe your top three, your favorite uh, examples of Barr being the most corrupt attorney general. <laughs> so the first one, I, I, would, I would combine dishonest and corrupt into one. Election fraud, the big lie about the election. Bill Barr, we remember sort of famously at the very end of his term, came out and said there was no evidence of massive election fraud. And people said, wow, look at him. He's declaring independence from Donald Trump. That This is when it was over. Bill Barr knew it was over. The problem is, for months leading up to the election, Bill Barr lied to the American public about massive threat of counterfeit ballots, of foreign interference. He testified in front of Congress about that. He went on CNN with Wolf Blitzer and gave a false story about a case that DOJ had done involving 1,700 ballots. Turned out it was a state case involving one ballot. So Bill Barr, even though he tried to sort of clear his name at the end, he is in a real way responsible for the big lie and what culminated on January 6th. That's number one. Um, the Mueller report is so egregious. We all know that Bill Barr lied. The thing that's particularly egregious about the Mueller report when you really dig into the details is this. He, he knew that Robert Mueller, he was told, we've since learned, um, through other people's reporting, that he told Robert Mueller, Robert Mueller told Bill Barr, I'm not going to make any recommendation about crime or no crime. And what did Bill Barr do? Nothing. He let it be. And then he jumped in and said, no obstruction. If Bill Barr really wanted there to be a conclusion, he could have said to Mueller, you need to do that. You should reach a conclusion or you ought to, or the regs require you to. I think they do. Instead, he sat back. The other devious thing Bill Barr did is, do you remember how long Bill Barr held on to the Mueller report after he sent his letter? It was a month, 27 days. And a judge, the judge I mentioned before, Reggie Walton, 
said that the reason there to do these redactions was bogus. So Bill Barr comes out, says no, no collusion, no obstruction. It spreads everywhere. Trump repeats it. McConnell repeats it. Kevin McCarthy repeats it. And it sort of becomes established truth. By the time the report came out, a lot of people said, whoa, that's not what this says, but it's too late. You can't undo a month long first impression. So those are two. The third one that I think is underrated, everyone knows about Flynn and Stone and how he intervened. And I talk about those in the book, but Ukraine, the first impeachment of Donald Trump, which now seems like ancient history. Bill Barr refused to even open a criminal investigation. He refused to even take a look, even though, in my view, there's significant evidence of bribery, extortion. Maybe they conclude it's a crime, maybe not. I've had those debates with people, but he wouldn't even open a case file when the burden is like this low off the ground to do that. So I think he really was obstructionist, dishonest. I call him a liar in the book. I say straight up, I say, Look, in, in media and law, the two fields I've worked, we don't lightly call someone a liar. You say they mis, misrepresented the truth or blah, blah, blah. I just say he's a liar. Like, I'm, I'm not pulling punches in this book. So um, those are my top three, I guess, Rich. So, Ellie, what kind of legacy against this backdrop do you think that Bill Barr is going to leave not only to Garland, but to future AGs? I hope he leaves a legacy as a distinct outlier. I hope that his way of doing things does not become the way of doing things. And I say in the book, you know, I hope that future attorneys general don't look back at Bill Barr and go, you know, he played fast and loose with the truth. He played politics, but he got away with a lot and he helped his president get away with a lot. I really hope that he doesn't, no pun intended, lower the bar. And I compare and contrast Bill Barr to the attorney general I served under. I served under three Republicans, John Ashcroft, Alberto Gonzalez, Michael Mukasey, and one Democrat, Eric Holder. And to me, I don't, I've said that I, I literally don't remember what it was like the day that the Obama administration took over. I don't remember there being any difference between January 21st, 2017 and January 19th, 2017. So, you know, that's how it should be. And all the AGs I served under and many before Bill Barr always upheld the two sort of core values of DOJ, which is its credibility and its political independence. And Bill Barr, I hope, and I hope this book drives home that he was an outlier in how badly he abused those two core principles. Ellie, real quick, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you for uh, your legal analysis on a issue that came out last couple of days from the New York Times reporting that a Manhattan DA or the Manhattan DA has convened a grand jury looking into uh, Trump corruption. Tell us what your thoughts are about that and whether the former CFO, uh, Alan Weisselberg, well, flip, right? There was news over the weekend. His former daughter-in-law said in an interview, she thinks he will flip and testify against his former boss. What are your thoughts on that real quick? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is and is not. This is a natural next step in a case that was progressing as a prosecutor would hope. It shows me they have some kernel, some reason to believe that they could be charging crimes. What this is not is sort of the the, the end for Donald Trump. We you, do not assume from this that this means he's about to be indicted or will be indicted. I think it's still, there's a lot that remains to be seen. This is a tough case for prosecutors to make. They have to show not just that there was fraud, but Donald Trump knew about it, authorized it, sanctioned it intentionally. And that's hard to do. And that's why Weisselberg, who you mentioned, is going to be such a key witness because he's the CFO. He's the only person not named Trump in the inner circle of the Trump organization. He's been there since the 70s. If he flips he could bring the keys to the castle. Will he flip? Honestly, I don't know. I, I, 
it may depend on whether they have the goods. You know, they're trying to build a tax case against him because you want to give a guy a reason to flip. People like him don't flip just to be good citizens. So he needs to be motivated. So it's sort of a chain reaction. Will they have enough to charge him? If so, where's his loyalty going to go to the Trumps or to trying to protect himself? So I think it's a coin toss right now. We know you got to run, but I got to ask you real quick. No uh, yes or no, Matt Gates will be Matt Gates will be indicted in the next six months. I think it's very, very likely. I think you do not cooperate a guy who is as heinous as Joel Greenberg unless, A, you have him corroborated every word he says backed up. And they seemingly do if you look at their papers that they've submitted on Joel Greenberg. And B, you don't cooperate someone that vile unless you intend to make serious cases against other people. So I think it's it's very likely Matt Gates gets indicted within the next several months. The book is called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. And I'll tell you, it just sounds like from what's already happened and what we need to keep an eye on in the future, this sounds like a historical must read from CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on Legal Face Off. Thanks for having me, everybody. I appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is the Legal Grab Bag here on WGN Radio with Legal Face Off. My name is Joey Christopoulos. I'm your guest moderator for today, stepping in for Joe Brand, the very handsome Joe Brand. With our hosts, as always, is Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. Tina, hello. Hello. How are we doing today? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. And we also have Rich here as well. Hello, Rich. Hello again. And our special guest panel today, we have Rusty Watts. He's partner at Swift Curry and McGee and Hires in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for joining us, Rusty. Welcome from Atlanta. And we also have on Expert Connect Litigation Support, Eric Broyles. Hello, Eric. Oh, thank you for having me. Eric, by the way, kudos to your background. I love what you've done with the, uh, <laughs> of all the virtual backgrounds you could choose. Just, hey man, keep it simple. I like it. All right, let's keep rolling, Joey. It's better than from my wife's vanity, which is where I am right now. But yeah, let's get to the first topic today for the legal grab bag. It is the QAnon shaman lawyer is in the news recently. The attorney for for Jacob Chansley, better known as the QAnon shaman, spoke on the record with talking points. He did an interview. He used a lot of offensive language, claiming that people at the Capitol 6 riot had brain damage and had intellectual disabilities. Rusty, if you'd like to go first and open up this conversation. Yeah, it was even worse than that. He said that they were all short bus people. Uh, and it, it's unbelievably offensive language. I've seen several lawyers use defenses where, for example, you know, my client's too dumb to lie or they're not competent enough to stand trial or potentially, you know, they didn't understand what was going on around them. <clears throat> but this is actually taking the position that being having Asperger's and being on the autism spectrum made them unable to kind of resist what was the, um, you know, the, the message of the former president and that he wound them up and sent them down the hill to the Capitol. So it's interesting to me um, to see people who were so all in on the theories now flipping on the theories and using that as, as their defense. It'll yeah, be interesting to see what he does to the Republican narrative in general for January 6th. You know, that's a really interesting take, Rusty, because um, I think you're right, uh, Tina. I think that we're seeing now you know, these people who just a couple of months ago were so emboldened to take over the U.S. Capitol in uh, defense of what they thought was right, which, of course, we know is just ridiculous. Now scrambling with all these other theories. Right. Uh, I had Asperger's. I didn't know what I was doing. I was out of my mind. I was, you know, influenced by others. Um, and this again, this is the guy who was wearing a Viking helmet 
and you know, like an animal hide sitting in Nancy Pelosi's chair. So um, yeah, I think I think there's two takeaways from the story. Number one, that uh, it's interesting that they're just not owning up to what they had asserted was this high-minded, you know, theory of why they did it. And secondly, you know, this attorney just going off and using these terms that he used. Uh, and I saw his subsequent interview. He said, quite frankly, that sometimes it does take that kind of language to get people's attention. So maybe it was brilliant legal strategy. Who knows? It certainly got our attention on legal face-off. Well, I think that's what it's really all about, right? Is people getting attention and making excuses. I thought it was all pretty outrageous. Yeah, Eric, what are your thoughts on this uh, legal strategy? Totally agree. I thought, it, I first of all, found it very offensive. It's it's not a viable legal strategy. I, I think it's definitely more of a distraction by the attorney. Uh, even, you know, it's really a red herring, right, that the attorney's throwing out. It's not, it, there's no basis in science for what he's claiming. And uh, so it's total total distraction. Coming up next, we have a Jeffrey Epstein story back in the news. Rich, take it away. Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, we all know, hung himself um, when uh, all the evidence was basically coming down on him of his horrific crimes. And just uh, this week, we learned the uh, what's going on with the uh, uh, jailers who were uh, negligent in some people's theories or some conspirators think that they were in on him, right? There's a whole school of thought that, that uh, supports the idea that the prison guards were in on the deal that uh, higher ups didn't want Epstein to live to implicate, you know, people as high up as the White House. Now, I don't want to dive into that theory. Maybe it's true. But the issue at hand is that, um, you know, I think they were dealt with pretty lightly. I think they got pretty lightly for, you know, basically what they were uh, looking at furniture on the Internet. They were shopping for motorcycles, looking at sports news instead of monitoring Jeffrey Epstein. You had one job, right, Tina? And, uh, you know, your job was to make sure that the biggest suicide risk in the world, maybe one of the biggest in history, right? Everyone knew that he was on suicide watch because otherwise he would have faced a life in, you know, whatever life he had left in jail, shameful life. All the evidence was against him. Yet they were so negligent or maybe turned the other way. They allowed him to kill himself. So, you know, they got off pretty, pretty light. Uh, the deal will allow them to avoid incarceration. Um, they're uh, instead subject to supervised release, 100 hours community service, basically a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, yes, Jeffrey Epstein, I, I don't think anybody is going to be able to defend his honor. Um, but that being said, as you said, Rich, he was on suicide watch. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew he was a high risk. And for these folks to be, you know, just not paying attention, asleep at the switch, both metaphorically as well as literally, um, is, is crazy to me that this was their one job was to keep an eye on him constantly. And not only did they look away, but they were not paying attention for hours on end. I, I think it's crazy. Yeah, Eric, uh, the U.S. attorneys involved in prosecuting this case have said that, you know, they are continuing to investigate. And of course, we know and we just had Ellie Honegan, who's a former U.S. attorney. We know that to get to the real source of these cases, you got to flip someone. Right. And you got to cut someone a deal. So maybe that's what's going on here. But, you know, it seems like a sweetheart deal for a pretty egregious, uh, pr pretty egregious act by these federal uh, prison guards. 
Yeah, and it only raises, right, the suspicions of those who are inclined to call for conspiracy theory here. This uh, this bolsters, right, that kind of position, right? If you if you believe something nefarious was afoot when Epstein was found dead, this plays right into that, you know, scenario that the guys who were supposed to watch him, you know, uh, and were not on, you know, doing their job, get to walk with a slap on the wrist. It also will be further raised if this report, there was a report done regarding this. If that's not made transparent to the public, and and, and obviously you have to trust the report itself, but if that's not transparent, then uh, I think the conspiracy theorists out there will may have a case the other unfortunate reality, Rusty and, and Eric, also is that, you know, it sort of uh, supports the idea of, you know, privilege, class privilege, racial privilege. Here you have a high profile criminal defendant, one of the highest profile in history, one with unlimited resources, billionaire, you know, friends as high as the White House. And the degree of attention he gets uh, is a couple of guys playing cards, watching the Internet, falling asleep. Yet, you know, you have much lower profile um, defendants of color all over this country, and they're getting much higher scrutiny than uh, Epstein did. I haven't seen that discussed too much, but to me, it's an obvious corollary of this whole story. You know, I kind of took a different um, approach to this, and I looked at the facts in this case and said to myself, what did these guys do that was illegal? They did their job poorly. If that uh, gets people arrested, then we got a lot of people that are going to be walking around in cuffs in this country. So to me, uh, you know, I'm, I dug a little deeper and I thought, well, what happened here? And the crime was they actually filled out their forms incorrectly after the fact. Right. So they did, they're not being arrested for falling asleep. They're not being arrested for doing their job poorly. They're not being arrested because they didn't watch the guy who killed himself. They're being arrested because they filled out a form incorrectly. So to me, when you talk about plea deals, the government's got to be getting something, right? Why in the world is there even a deal unless the government gets something? And that goes back to Eric's kind of head nod at the, at, at the conspiracy theorists. What does the government want? Why is the government prosecuting at all? Um, and well, so, I think it's a great you know, point, Rusty. It's a great point. And yes, it's correct. What they're being prosecuted or they were being prosecuted for is obstruction of justice, which is a serious crime, right? There's the allegation that they, they changed this evidence to cover something up. So that deserves a lot more scrutiny. But really quick, Eric, what are your thoughts on the idea that, you know, the, the jailers of this, you know, white privileged billionaire, uh, you know, get a, he got a lot less scrutiny than your average other criminal defendant in the federal system would. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously uh, there's a lot of attention paid to the law enforcement community, if you will, and uh, African-Americans and people of color. And I, uh, I, I can tell you as, you know, as an African-American and someone who you know knows people who've been through the system, uh, none of them would describe it as them having sort of lax oversight, right, right by their jailers. And so, uh, but yeah, there's certainly an aspect of sort of privilege here. Maybe, you, you know, you can put it in the bucket of unconscious bias where these jailers, just because of the society we grow up in, just don't view someone like Jeff Epstein as somebody who needs to be sort of monitored or treated badly, no matter what his crime was versus some of the other uh, people that they see that come through their system. And very interesting perspective from Rusty. I didn't even really think about that, about just doing your job poorly. I was immediately thinking of when I was 
working fine dining at Gibson's and being like, should I be in trouble? Because I did not do that job very well either. <laughs> Moving on to our next topic. Uh, Tina, a request for a firing squad? This is our newest topic here on Legal Grab Guide. Yeah, so this is actually, I, I find this to be a really sad story. The Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal by a death row inmate who wanted to be um, executed by firing squad. Um, the issue with this case, there are a lot of procedural twists and turns, but high level, um, lawyers for convicted killer Ernest Johnson wanted to try to have him be um, executed by firing squad because he has some issues. He suffers from epileptic seizures. And the theory was it would be cruel and unusual punishment for him to be executed by lethal injection. So, you know, things seem to be going okay until, um, you know, the Eighth Circuit had actually agreed um, that he should potentially not be um, executed by lethal injection, but to be done by, ni by nitrogen gas. And the issue was that during the interim and the pendency of this case, that was found to be an ineffective way to execute. And so his attorneys tried to amend the complaint. The upshot is the Eighth Circuit uh, would not agree to his uh, attempt to amend his complaint, and the Supreme Court shot it down and would not hear the appeal. So the liberal side of the Supreme Court um, was very vociferous in their dissent, arguing that this is um, plain and simple, cruel and unusual punishment because of his physical circumstances. Um, for him to be executed in this fashion um, would cause him extraordinary pain. So this is a pretty unusual case given the circumstances, and I find it to be a pretty sad one. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting dynamic because the Eighth Amendment, as you uh, referenced to the Constitution, does prohibit cruel and unusual punishment. Listen, uh, most opponents of capital punishment argue that killing someone by the state is a violation of the Eighth Amendment anyway, whatever form it takes. This case says that, or, or this case, the proposition in this case is that one type of execution is less uh, torturous than others because of his specific condition. Who knows, right? I mean, once you start going down that hole, are you going to, as long as we have capital punishment in this country, are you going to make every person's individual circumstance the litmus test? I mean, that seems to be uh, an arduous task Again, you could argue that Supreme Court should be outlawed entirely in this country. But as long as it, is, as it is the law, I think it's difficult to leave it up to the individual to choose the method of execution. Uh, Rusty, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what I found fascinating about this case was the procedural posture. And that is how the court changed from 2019 when the case first came up to the Supreme Court versus how it was determined, how it was decided since the two Trump appointees were put on the court. Uh, the Supreme Court has traditionally been divided between, you know, on this cruel and unusual um, punishment issue on party lines. And in 2019, the Eighth Circuit ruled in favor of nitrogen gas over the uh, over the injection. The Eighth Circuit case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, on a 5-4 decision, overruled the Eighth Circuit and said that nitrogen gas wasn't um, proven to be not cruel and unusual. It didn't have a good track record, is what the court said. So then it went back down to the Eighth Circuit. At which point the lawyers for the defendant said, look, we'd like to do this by firing squad. And, and when it came back up, this Eighth Circuit said, 
basically you should have asked for that the first time and you didn't. And so then it goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, who now has Kavanaugh on the court and now and and doesn't have Ginsburg on the court anymore. We have two new people on the court all of a sudden on a 6-3 say we're going to not touch the Eighth Circuit decision. So I thought I thought it was really interesting the way the, the dynamic of the court changed and so did the way they dealt with it. Yeah. Eric, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, if you all will recall, I know probably, I think my first year out of law school, I was actually clerking on the, the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. I remember getting a death penalty case. Um, but if you recall, there was a big legislation change kind of in that 95, 96 time period that kind of gutted a lot of the pursuit. Basically, they wanted to streamline death penalties in the U.S. Do you all recall that change in legislation? Um, I forget if it was tied to, you know, contract with the mayor. I forget what it was. But essentially, it limits the courts, right, to at least in, 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 in many view to like looking at the again, the procedural process were were the, uh, the procedurally was it, you know, something that would uh, allow you to overturn it just limits the ability of the, the court to, to, to do that. And so I, I think it's a bad outcome. I, I do think that, you know, in, in this instance, I, I get the slippery slope of like having defendants pick. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I, I know when that legislation in the mid 90s was passed, it basically streamlined death penalty cases to make them happen quicker. Uh, the, the one death penalty case I reviewed as a clerk, the gentleman had been on death row for, I think, 12 or 14 years. And I don't think that happens as much anymore, right? It's this condensed time period in which people are being executed. It's just interesting that, the, uh, that they allow the choice to be made of nitrogen gas over lethal injection. And then on a procedural technicality, when it gets back down, they don't even address the issue of the Eighth Amendment, right? They just say you should have asked for it before. I mean, it's form over substance. Yeah, for sure. Moving on to our next topic. Our next topic is going to come with a disclaimer for our viewers and for our plan panel. Please do not drink or ingest any liquids because this may cause a spit take. Rich, Kim Kardashian is being sued again. What a shocker. Uh, <laughs> Kim K is second to only uh, Trump in providing us on this show with legal content over the last few years. Let's talk Everything about from... Sorry about that. Everything from uh, Kim K uh, studying to be a lawyer to the almost inevitably weekly lawsuits that she's faced with. So now the latest is that uh, she was hit by a lawsuit by her former maintenance staff, all of whom I believe are uh, Hispanic and allege that they were not given itemized pay stubs. Uh, one employee, one former employee is age 16, said that he was forced to work past the 48 hour maximum allowable hours for an underage summer employee. Uh, they go on to allege that Kardashian refused to pay them overtime and also forced them to keep working without taking breaks in between for meals. Um, the attorney representing this group says that wage theft and other workplace violations are a widespread problem in Los Angeles and that she's also representing many other individuals who are alleging such treatment uh, by celebrities. So, Tina, you know, you would think that Kim K is worth uh, billions of dollars, although her pending divorce will probably make that about half. Um, you would think she'd be able to 
pay people what they are owed, especially, you know, laborers like this. Is this allegation, if these allegations are correct, she's trying to rip them off. Celebrities really are different, aren't they, Tina? They are different. But, you know, as I was reading this, I mean, Kim K seems to be in the center of everything, both good and not so good. Um, And in this instance, I'm wondering to what extent the company that she hired that really is responsible for these folks. I mean, I actually read this thinking it's quite possible that she's actually not responsible in this instance. Not that I'm a big Kim K defender or anything, but, um, you know, this company that was the actual employer um, of these folks, it it sounds to me like they may not be doing a particularly great job of, um, of doing right by their employees. Yeah. And Eric, uh, in her defense, another source quoted says that Kim K actually does not have a history of not paying her bills that she takes a lot of pride in paying people for their time and for their effort. Uh, and of course, uh, she, through her attorney, has denied this wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, you know, on this one here, you, you have to think for uh, that she's probably not paying too much attention, right, to sort of the domestic help that's at her home, right? That she's probably not, uh, it's gonna be hard to probably uh, make show that this was a conscience, you know, like a that there's some mens rea on her part, right, of intentionally doing this. So I, um, I, I think again, not a Kim K defender, but I think if anything, this probably probably should be placed in a bucket of oversight by some busy celeb who's probably not at that home much anyway. My question is: Are there were they summer internships? Is that what that was pitched to? Is for these like sixteen year olds? I mean, no, no, this was not like some, you know, working in in, in show business for a celebrity. They were doing, you know, work yeah. around her house. They were like cutting gardening. grass and doing yeah, gardening yeah. and maintenance. So this was not a, uh, you know, exactly uh, working as an intern on the reality show. It's like. <laughs> Just doesn't. Uh, it just. I, I know, Rich. At least you give. You know, your 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 team around you at least to give them Christmas off and stuff like that, which is very nice of you. Moving on to our next topic, um, Tina. Sir Jenks sues Ice Cube. Yeah, who would have thunk? You know, thirty plus years ago, when these guys were in CIA together, that it would come down to this. So one thing I didn't realize is, and I'll ask the group: Do you do you guys know who Sir Jinks is related to? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, Big Daddy Jinx. Sir Jinx Sr. Dr. Dre's cousin. Oh, really? He's Dr. Dre's cousin, yeah. I didn't know that. I was going to say Sir Mix-a-Lot. Yeah. (laughs) 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 That would have been a really creative one. if Any first name. I mean, that's, you know, how many first, how many sirs are there? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so Sir Jinx and uh, and Ice Cube are not getting along so well these days. So Sir Jinx claims that he has been shortchanged by Ice Cube in the production of a bunch of different songs, 28 to be exact, um, over many years. And he said that he only recently realized that he's been shorted at least $100,000 by Ice Cube. Um, He's asked the court for an accounting Um, Some of the songs that he believes he got stiffed on, for those of you who are Ice Cube fans, are No Vaseline, True to the Game, The Bomb, It's a Man's World, The Funeral, and Who Got the Camera. So um, I don't think that Ice Cube is talking just yet about this development, but um, 
I just want people to get along, you know, and it's just really sad that these guys have known each other for over 30 years and collaborated for a long time that it comes down to this over a hundred thousand dollars. That's a good takeaway. It is my big takeaaway. Can't yeah, we just get along? get along? <laughs> Rusty, I know you're a big fan of uh, both Surjinx and uh, Ice Cube. I mean, this all comes down from a legal perspective. The takeaway is like, write it down, have a contract, make it abundantly clear. Uh, not when things get difficult, but when things are easy, right? Well, you know, it kind of reminds me of, I think it's, it was R.E.M. who had five members of the band and a sixth person who was their, um, was their kind of their band guru who took them around and made sure that everything was done. And they, at one point, put together a pie, a pie chart and said all equal. You know, that was considered something right. that years later they went back and looked at and, and gave the guy a, a full sixth. But and and by the way, I am I'm a big Ice Cube fan, and I love the, the old NWA stuff. So that uh, that I I really do enjoy. But my first thought of when I saw this was the old the doctrine of latches back from old law school days, right? Like most of this stuff is 25 and almost 30 years old. At what point do do you can you no longer bring a lawsuit to go back and get the money that you should have been accounting for a long time ago? So I know this is over a period of years, but most of this stuff was early 1990s. Those first 28 tracks were mostly in the early part of the post NWA music. But wouldn't that uh, hinge on uh, his uh, uh, awareness of the, like him becoming aware of the, the kind of a fraud, if you will, being committed against him? Well, I suppose so, but I don't see any allegation of fraud here. I just see an allegation of non-payment. And I think those are two very different things. Yeah. So um, I, you know, my, my feeling about this is, you know, there's a very good possibility that stuff like Spotify or the way the way musicians get paid now is so different than it was in the 1990s that maybe there's an accounting difference between now and then that would explain, you know, the allegation. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking for an accounting. I just think after a certain amount of time, you ought to take the toys and go home. We have just two topics left here on legal face-off. The next one, Rich, it looks like John Marshall Law School is heading towards a name change. Yeah, I'm actually going to take this one. So um, because I'm actually a UIC um, alum from oh. the engineering school, not the law school, but, um, but yeah, this news came down a few days ago that um, the law school is going to change its name back in 2019. You'll remember that UIC and John Marshall merged to form the UIC John Marshall Law School. And effective July 1st, the law school is going to change its name to the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. The decision was made by all the higher-ups um, that because of John Marshall's circumstances being that he was a slave owner and very racist, um, that it did not align with the school's values of diversity and inclusion. Um, having been an alum of UIC, I can attest to that, that that's been something that's been a very important part of the school's um, just constitution since the very beginning. So because of that, the decision was, was made to remove John Marshall's name from the school. There was an acknowledgement that, of course, um, he has contributed a lot to the jurisprudence of this country. Um, and but on, under the circumstances, everybody was in agreement that this name change had to be made. Yeah, I mean, he's unquestionably one of the most consequential jurists in American history, right? I mean, a, a quote of his is etched 
in marble in the Supreme Court building from 1803. Um, and, you know, he, th- th- there's no question as to his legacy from a legal perspective. Now, you know, there's this debate going on in this country over the last few years of what to do, right? We're all wrestling with the dilemma of our past and more specifically the past of some of the most consequential men generally, uh, white men, more more specifically in American history, right? Uh, John Marshall owned slaves. He owned uh, many slaves, uh, hundreds of slaves from 1801 to 1835. You know who else owned slaves was Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, uh, even Alexander Hamilton. Uh, We are not changing the names of institutions bearing their names. Now, I say all this with the caveat that I'm in favor of this change. Uh, I was one of the people who was very much in favor of, in fact, early on led the charge just down the street where my my children go to Chicago Public School. We changed the name. We were the first CPS school to change their name in the wake of this movement from Lewis Agassiz Elementary to Harriet Tubman. So going forward, our school will be named after the great civil rights icon, Harriet Tubman, and away from someone who believes in white supremacy. So I'm in favor of this. But many people, Tina, Eric, Rusty, aren't. They say that you don't have to forget uh, or cancel, to use a popular term, someone's history um, to recognize it. So it's a very tough uh, dilemma. Uh, Eric, where do you come down on this on this equation? Yeah, so I I get the argument, this kind of slip, again, another slippery slope argument of like, where do you stop in terms of uh, taking? There's one thing to say, you know, call this, to say canceling something that's, again, it's kind of diminishing in and of itself is a is a form of of, of bias, right, to to, to kind of uh, denigrate these the sentiments of the people who are victims of this to say, oh, you're just trying to cancel something. Actually, you're not. We, I don't want to, I, I want to know. I went to University of Virginia for law school. So I actually love the history of Thomas Jefferson. But I, but, and, and, and I think there are aspects of his contributions to the country that have to be honored and recognized. But the law school, you can recognize the history of, of Justice Marshall without honoring him with naming a building after him, right? There's no, uh, there, there, there's, there's no uh, requirement that we name buildings or erect monuments to, to people. And so uh, I would say that, uh, and I'm, I actually sit actually at the University of Cincinnati, which is my undergraduate. I'm in the board office now where I'm a board of trustee member. And we had this issue. We had to, re- we removed the name of the McMicken Hall, uh, College of Arts and Science. Uh, McMickens was a slave owner, and uh, but he was the biggest donor in the history of the University of Cincinnati. The, the grounds I'm sitting on, he donated, you know, in the 1800s. And so it was, a, it was we had to go through a rigorous process, right, to analyze how to do this. But ultimately, we all pay a cost for the uh, the brutality and racism that brought about slavery. I pay a cost for it right now. I don't think it's too much of a burden for people who, you know, are history buffs to not have, you know, uh, somebody's name on a building that may bring me grief. Well stated. Rusty, what are your thoughts on this? You know, to to some extent, I defer. And that is I'm a 56 year old white male. And and I don't we have a lot of statues and things coming down in the South as a result of this exact same type of analysis. Um, 
I don't have to walk by those statutes every day, statues every day and have them impact me in any way, uh, except for uh, possibly in the, in the good ways. You know, when you read Justice Marshall's quote on the Supreme Court wall. So, so I don't, the impact on me is so very different than it is on people of color. Um, I tend to feel that it, um, if you look hard enough, you can all, you can completely discredit almost everyone who existed before 1900. And so there's a real danger with, with cleansing our past to the point where we don't discuss it anymore. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a discussion about the impact of Justice Marshall and his contributions along with his flaws and, and the things that were wrong. And I think Eric puts it very eloquently when he says we can honor, we, 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 no, we can acknowledge without honoring. And I, I guess the difference is once you've already honored, are you cleansing once you take down the name, right? So I get a little worried about that. Um, but I acknowledge that it's really not, it doesn't impact me the way it does other people. Well, so we're going to get to our final topic here on Legal Faceoff. Thank you for our panel for joining. And thank you to Tina and Rich for allowing me to moderate. I am so thankful because I get to say this last topic out loud. Man sues Gwyneth Paltrow's company Goop for vagina scented candle exploding. That is a Mad Libs unlike any other. Uh, Rich, Rich or Tina, who would like to take, who would like to front this bad boy? I mean, we're not making this stuff up. As we say constantly on Legal Face Stuff, you can't make this shit up. This candle, I was not aware of this candle, uh, but the title of the candle, Tina, is, uh, I'm quoting it, this candle smells like my vagina. Um, words I never thought I would say. On a podcast on WGM, but hey, I said it. Well, you shouldn't really be saying them, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's the name, right? We all agree that's the actual name of this product. This candle smells like my vagina. So uh, a consumer purchased a $75 candle, which in and of itself is that's the biggest crime in this whole damn story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to leave that part alone, but he's, uh, he's alleging $5 million in damages after uh, a candle exploded. This 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 candle uh, exploded and caused uh, and is prone to catastrophic failure, according to the lawsuit, because after being in the cradle for three hours per this plaintiff, uh, it uh, uh, exploded and uh, it uh it's not the first time it's happened. There are other allegations of this candle exploding. Goop, the company that is owned and started by Gwyneth Paltrow, have responded with a statement that asserts that the candle is a safe and properly tested product. They call the legal action frivolous um, and nothing more than an attempt to, uh, you know, gain some money off the back of this corporation. Certainly is a uh, attention-getting lawsuit. Anytime you have the word candle and vagina together, I guess, Tina. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, newsworthy story that got our attention. Well, and also, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, I mean, I guess from a marketing perspective, it was a stroke of brilliance, but if I were her at this stage in her career, I don't know if I would necessarily think that this was my ticket to getting back on people's radars in a positive way, but there's so many weird things about this story. Like this other woman who claimed that she had the exploding candle. So first of all, she wins it in a work quiz. Who, what kind of workplace does she work in? That what they terrible think it's an HR. Appropriate 
yes. present an appropriate like award is to get a candle like this. Yeah, I mean the worst the worst HR uh, decision in history. Let me think. Can I give a present <laughs> to a coworker HR department that has the word vagina in it? Sure, no problem. Rich, you definitely you cannot. Also- And then she also claimed the same woman who claims that her workplace gave this to her as as a reward, that the explosion lasted no longer than five minutes. What? I mean, how does an explosion last more than five seconds, let alone five minutes? Your house burns down. You burn down the town after five minutes. So I, I don't understand much Big of this. Big candle for 75 bucks. It's a That's really right. It was, it, was a, it was a Roman candle, not a regular candle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even want to touch this this part of it, but like the we title, will anyway. the, 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 the whole subject of the candle, like, really? Smell, <laughs> smells like vagina? Is that something that... Oh, by the way, I saw a... a uh, a doctor quoted as saying, I smell this candle and it doesn't smell like well, it was a gynecologist, right? <laughs> like, I know the smell and this is how it smells. You can only sell so many beechwood candles. You know what I mean? There's only so much before you got to. I'm, I'm going to reel this back in for one second. And I'm going to say the thing that caught my attention was not the name, but the fact that they wanted $5 million for a charred table. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, that's, my that's question cool. is, Eric. What was turned away? What titles of the candles at at, at Goop headquarters? <laughs> what what is being rejected? If smells like vagina was the one they came up with and said, "Uh huh, we got it." That's it. What's right. in the all, with, with, what's with all the puns that have been flowing? I'll, I'll just say this is a hot topic, and uh, <laughs> and I, I really don't want to touch it. So. <laughs> um, uh yeah i you know i don't know that i can really add anything to this i guess was it foreseeable that you could have an explosion a design defect was it a manufacturing defect who knows but yeah i I think you can put this in the category of uh frivolous joey i'm waiting for the next product um it's it's gonna be a popular one it's called smells like ass (laughs) <laughs> that's the next candle that say greek neck hair is going to be my is working on. I mean, um, it's going to be post-workout bliss uh is going to be the one and rusty you're bringing up a great point five million dollars that means one million dollars per one minute of explosion so <laughs> that that checks out that checks out to me uh, i think that's probably going to wrap it up here on legal face-off rusty and eric thank you so much for joining the panel really great having you on and getting your perspectives today thank you and for being on our show, our parting gift is a smells like vagina candle. <laughs> we'll be sending those out to the mail. Look for it and, and don't bring it on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> found it either. Yeah. Do not do anything with any sort of gas of any kind. Uh, your moderator today, your guest moderator was Joey Christopoulos filling in for Joe Brand with our wonderful hosts, Tina Martini and Rich Lunkoff. You guys, thank you so much for letting me step in and guest. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. So fun. Yeah. <laughs> on WGN Radio, make sure you check us out on Facebook, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, however you want to do it. Like it, share it, love it. Watch the next one. Thank you so much for joining you guys. Until next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.